0: Greetings again, everyone. I was over in Dallas last week, and we had about 180 over there because of the letter that went out. We had a number of new people together with the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and a number of people from the Denton area. It's good to be back in Tyler. my second time to speak here, I think, since the famous operation. We have some congratulations to issue here today, don't we? What was that that I missed at the end of all of that? But anyway, congratulations. Surprise, surprise. I wanted to mention that we went on SPN television, as you know, two weeks ago, and today when they were manning the telephones out there, they had 80 brand new names coming in, 81 it was, including one from as far away as Puerto Rico and San Juan, and scattered all over the United States, and Benny was just telling me that that is $160 more than it costs us just to be on Shreveport every week to be on a cable that gives us 272 outlets and access into 10.5 million American homes. It has more than doubled our total TV mail already, and with that $160 more than Shreveport per week, it has tripled the mail we get from Shreveport. Now i got some more good news to. Report and hope it's good news and that they don't you know, maybe a 10% chance they might cancel it, but We are pretty well on the Nashville cable television network and that is I think between two and three times bigger than SPM and We should be on that one fairly quickly and when we do we probably will cancel all the radio that we, the church, are maintaining. That means WCKY, and K-W-E-S up here. That's the only three that we're really maintaining right now. We will continue to send tapes to all of those along the way in local areas if they want to continue to sponsor a radio program. I've got about 1,200 or so of them in there available. I don't think I'll make any new ones just for that purpose. But we'll concentrate our efforts on TV and take a hiatus on radio for the time being for the simple reason we have to find dollars and exchange dollars for dollars. We can't create brand new dollars out of thin air. And we must not miss the opportunity to go on Nashville cable television. I think it reaches about 10% of the population or about 20 million American homes and should again redouble the mail that we're now receiving on television. So. For the first time in all of these years where we've felt like we're a little bit on a treadmill and almost standing still and growing so very, you know, at, at such a inch by inch pace, I think we're going to begin seeing growth in very great, big percentage points as so far as mail and uh, the impact on our own uh, costs here in terms of producing the booklets, the magazines and so on. Now here we've bitten off the commitment to go into Watch Magazine at the same time. But I think we can do all of that. I'm pretty sure that we can. And by canceling very likely Chicago, New Orleans, and probably Akron Television, and the two or three radio I mentioned, we will have adequate to defray the cost for both SBN and the Nashville Network without impacting negatively our cash flow picture. And still, I'm going to write a letter, a third-class letter, to the entire mailing list and telling them all about this, and especially people who probably will wonder why they can't get me anymore on radio here and there. Uh, If you were to look at the radio mail, it's only a minuscule percentage of what we would receive on television and are receiving already. WAI and WCKY don't even keep pace with Freeport Television as it is. So there's no real need for me to go in there and bang my brains out every single day, five days a week. I really have to preach about six days a week, because when you look at Sunday television every week, getting them head, of course, and then here or away, always preaching on the Sabbath, and then Monday through Friday when I'm here, and when I do it, which is at least much of the time, uh, on radio, it begins to become a little bit of a grind, especially after 28 solid years of doing all of that. So that is very encouraging to me. I'm going to come in here some Saturday morning, I think, and watch the lights uh, light up and uh, hear the telephone ring and just be a part of all that while it's going on. What I have for you today is the result of a great deal of my mail and also the result of a question from a lady who came to the meeting over in Dallas last week. She asked me, what should be the attitude and the approach of the authority in the church toward the local lay membership. In effect, she wanted to know, how should our leaders act in the church? She was a refugee from another church, looking around, wondering if anyone had spotted her there, very fearful that she would be discovered, because being with us last Sabbath could have caused her to be put out of the organization she currently attends. She is also a widow lady. She's also partially blind. And as if that weren't enough, she's also black. She related to me how the minister had come to her and some of the other widows in the area several times and asked, couldn't you get on food stamps? Couldn't you go check into welfare? Isn't there some way in your area where you could find methods of support because, you see, if you could, then we could take you off the third tithe rolls, and we would be able to use that money for the work. Now, this lady didn't happen to be a very dumb lady or unintelligent. She's quite astute. And she said, Mr. Garner Ted, I didn't think the third tithe was for the work. She said, I thought it was for the widows. I said, you're right. It is. So actually the man's point was invalid in the beginning because assuming that some of the widows could get help, and of course if they can get help that is easily obtainable, then why not? That's no big deal. But I mean, urging them to try to get them off of the support from the church as if that is the primary motivating reason behind it all seems a little ludicrous on its face. That was interesting i get a number of letters from other frightened refugees but i think the one that really took the cake was a telephone call from mrs judy gross to my wife some weeks ago and by the way charlie called last week and told me that the groups up in denver are meeting together everything is going very very well and uh, they have a growing group up there and it's just really terrific and i think that all of you who heard charlie gross speak when we were at the conference last year could understand why because with him as the pastor in that area i should imagine the church will be growing and will be quite a happy group well his wife and he were very very close on a first name personal basis not in a hierarchical sense as the commander and all the little indians running around under the uh under the orders of the chief but as a friend with the members in the congregation over in north carolina that charlie served So when one of Judy's very close friends was having a very difficult problem with childbirth, she went all the way back there, flew all the way back to North Carolina to be with her close friend at this time. The lady went into the hospital, was having a very difficult time. I don't know the details, that's not important to the story. But she nearly died. She came very close to dying. The baby was born. I don't know if they took it by cesarean or what. But finally, the baby was born. It was the day or two following that Judy Gross, with another lady, I believe, and the woman was lying who was lying in the bed, were in the hospital, visiting and keeping her company. When the pastor of the local church that uh, the lady attended showed up, well, he knew who Judy was, but it was like he didn't suddenly because he looked at her the way one might inspect an insect on one's floor. She said, oh, hello, Mr. So-and-so, how are you? And he just sort of looked at her. I don't know if he spoke or not, but she thought, I'd better leave the room. This is a very uncomfortable environment all of a sudden. So she left the room. The minister walked up to the lady in bed who told Judy all about it later and said, who was that? Why, that was Mrs. Judy Gross. Oh, he said, well, I guess you know what this means. And she said, please, she said, I I don't want to talk about it. I'd rather not discuss whatever problems that might mean today, lying here in a hospital bed. You know what was interesting? The man never got around to saying, well, how are you? Uh, How did the the childbirth go? Is the baby alive? How's the baby? Uh, How are you feeling? What's the prognosis? What does the doctor say? Never even asked, how are you? in the time that he was there. I was in the hospital over here. I had a big operation, a little piece of bone taken out of my elbow. I was almost besieged with chaplains. I got sick of the chaplains coming in there. Two younger ones and an older one. They'd come in while my wife was there, and and they'd come wandering in. Is there anything we can do for you? You know, like a little dog. (laughs) Can I get the slippers, you know? Can I run out and get the paper? Anything I can do for you? And on two occasions, I had one of them just went ahead and did it. I got prayed for while I was in the hospital. I I couldn't even say no. I just kind of looked in amazement. He's going on and on and on. I didn't want him praying for me, but he just started praying for us. My wife is kind of crossing and uncrossing her legs. I'm picking at non-existent lint on the bed covers. And the guy is standing there praying. Well, the chief of all of the chaplains came in, and every, three, every one of those three chaplains that came in and said, would, would it, you know, would you mind if we prayed with you? And how are you? I had a little thing in my elbow. And these chaplains of some non-denominational hospital staff are just beating a path to the door of people lying in a hospital bed. How are you? How are you feeling? How are you doing? When I would walk up and down the hallway, inevitably, the people in the rooms of the, with the door open there would be very elderly, uh, gray-haired, thin, emaciated people, some of them looking near death, lying in a hospital bed. And, you know, I thought that is terrific that over at Baylor they have that service where those people, no matter what family contacts they have, are not alone that they can expect a minister of whatever church to come in there and hold their hand and talk to them and say, can I pray for you? Am I supposed to say that's bad? They don't preach doctrine to them. They don't try to pollute them. They don't try to get them to join anything. They don't say, in return for me praying for you, will you come on along to my church when you get out? It's just, can I serve you while you're here? Now, as I contrast that with a lady who nearly died, who is a sister of a congregation in good standing of long tenure in the church, who has nearly died with a baby and her pastor, who is supposed to be what? I'm trying to answer this black lady's question. What should my pastor be like? What should the leadership in our church be like? What should the authorities in the church be like? I tried to explain to her, I would think that the pastor would be, at all times, your very best friend. You know, Abraham was called the friend of God, and God was Abraham's friend. He is our father. When the lightning is thundering, you're a little bitty child, and you're afraid, who do you want to go and cuddle up to? Who do you want to run and jump into bed with? Whose hand do you want to hold? But dad or mom, but you want to run in there, and maybe a lot of kids do that, and dad and mom are lying there, and there's a violent thunderstorm. All of a sudden, all the kids are in bed, because they want to be there where they can be comforted. In a time of trouble, people want friends around. When your heart aches so bad you can't stand it, whether it's a financial problem, whether it's what Mrs. Nora Sharp and her family went through last week with the loss of her father, who do you want to be there at the funeral? Who do you want to come up and give you a big hug? Whose hand do you want to hold? Who do you want to talk to? Who do you want to see around you at a time like that? Your friends, people you know and you trust and you love. Certainly, if you're lying in a hospital bed, you've nearly died, you've got a little infant in there, and I don't know the condition of the baby or the details of the birth. Wouldn't it be lovely if your pastor came in and said, How are you? Anything I can do to help you? How's the baby? Etc. Well, the minister waited a couple, three days. She was allowed to go home, and the very day she came home from the hospital, he showed up with another man and walked into the living room and put her out of the church for daring to let her closest friend of years, the minister's wife, who came with this hideous group, in her hospital room. Of course, Mrs. Gross spent all of the money to go back there on the airplane, to be with her friend, to be with her at this terrible time, and, you know, God bless her for doing so. And she is, of course, ostracized, and the woman is now out of the church. Well, I imagine, I may not have all of the details exactly, perfectly straight. I'm telling this as well as I can from what my wife told me, but forgive me if I got even any tiny detail in error. The point I want to make is an element of an attitude that exists in the ministry of a church. Once in a great while I begin to wonder if even all of the ministers in the Church of God International have yet really gotten the point, and whether all of them also understand what I believe I have finally come to understand. To answer the lady's question, what should our ministers be like? Let's look at the ones with whom Christ, and all of those during his time, had to deal over in Matthew 18 and verse 1, this is Matthew 18 and verse 1, I want to show you how Christ must have sometimes been tried almost beyond frustration because at the very time when he would have wanted a friend, when he would have wanted understanding and empathy, these young men that surrounded him seemed to be, of all things, the most, the most carnal, you can imagine. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying... Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I hear of a church that has top ministers. He's one of our top men. Oh, I see. Jolly good. One of the top drawer, you know. Mm. Awesome, isn't it? And there are top. Well, it follows that there must then be a bottom. And who is the bottom? Well, they don't get around. He's the bottom. You know. No, they don't, he's the top, he's the bottom. No one wants to be labeled that way, but they obviously must have, as a proper sequitur, a bottom if they've got a top. Jesus answered by a demonstration. He didn't just lecture them, but he called a little child there out of the group, and he set the little child right there, probably took him on his lap or held him. And he said, I'm telling you the truth. You know, this word verily is interesting because he used it time and again as for emphasis, saying this is a little jewel of absolute accurate truth. Verily, I say unto you, truly, perfectly, I'm telling you, except you become converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. That isn't what they asked. They didn't ask about, how can I get into the kingdom? They asked, once I'm there, assuming I'm there, of course that's where I'm going, that's where I'm headed, who is going to be the biggest and the best and the greatest and the most awesome, the most portentous, and have the most presence, and so on? He said, you won't even get there unless you become as little children. He sort of pushed aside their question and answered the attitude instead of the question. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then he finally answered that part of the question. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, obviously a spiritual analogy, speaking now of people, adults, but little ones, quote, in Christ, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That would be a better fate. Now, that would be a horrible fate. Take you out, put a big old, you know, concrete block around your neck, piece of rope, kick you out of the rowboat in about 40 feet of water. You're saying help with the first breath, and then you feel like your lungs are going to burst, and pretty soon you pass out, and you simply strangle, because drowning is strangling. You don't ingest air. You simply can't ingest anything. Your, Your throat locks, and you drown. Our Savior says that the punishment which is going to come to someone who offends a little one who believes in Jesus is going to be a harsher punishment than being kicked out of that rowboat in 40 feet of water wearing a ton of concrete. That's what he says. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, because people are going to treat people hatefully, and wars and all that will come, but woe to that man by whom, the man through whom, the man who is the agent of these offenses, by whom the offense comes, the instigator of it, the architect of the offenses. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offends you, again an analogy, obviously, because in another place we're told the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and obviously you can see with both eyes and you can reach with both hands But by analogy, he is showing those closest things to you, whether it's a hobby or an appetite, a desire, a lust, or whatever. Be like cutting it out of your life. It's better for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Why does he use that analogy? When he is dealing with authority, when he's dealing with who is the greatest, and when he's dealing with getting into the kingdom of God, Notice how it follows along in verse 10. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Why did he say that? Why would a person in authority ever tend to despise someone under them in authority? Is that a natural consequence of being in authority? The answer is yes it is if you are carnal. If you think of authority as power and as control and as some aggrandizement of your own personality, some statement of your own pomp and importance, actually it is axiomatic. Get this into your mind and never forget it. The greater the authority, the more protracted the despot or the despotism the more intensely paranoid the dictator the greater his contempt for the masses is true. The greater his power the greater his contempt for the masses. Why? Because all such men are men gripped with a deep abiding inferiority complex. Men in terrible fearful doubt of their own abilities. Inferior, fallible men who must continually seek support and buttressing for their own swollen, egotistical concept of themselves. And in order to continue to exercise that power and that authority and the loss of even one little centillionth percentage of that power or authority is a great threat to them. They treat the people under them with absolute contempt. Some of them have been known to call the people under them as nothing but pigs, chickens, cows, and dogs. Don't mess with the masses because that's all they are. I want to read something to you that is very fascinating to me. This is a fascinating subject. And it's fascinating in the sequitur that he uses because it doesn't really seem to follow logically. They ask a the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Showing that they're thinking in terms of aggrandizement and power and office. And he just goes all the way down to a little innocent child looking up, wondering what's going on, and says you won't even get into the kingdom except you become as a little child. And then again when he says, why, why does he interject? You won't enter the kingdom unless you take something, What something that is so close to you as your own eye or your own hand and cut it out of your heart and throw it away from you and then says take heed you despise not one of these little ones is not he telling us that that lust that desire for power for control over other human beings is so gripping and so all-encompassing that it is such a part of many people it is just like one of their eyes just like one of their hands like one of their members I think that's what he's telling me it's one of the most dear and precious desires in the hearts of men I talked about this book about four years ago I have got about three copies of it because the pages fell out of a couple and I found one as a standby copy called A man called Intrepid, the secret war, the authentic account of the most decisive intelligence operations of World War II, and this is absolutely documented. This is an interesting factor involving pre-World War II Soviet Russia under Stalin. And I'm quoting from page 36. This is Stevenson writing and he had learned that the head pretty much of the Nazi party's own secret intelligence organization was Reinhard Tristan Eugen Heydrich now Heydrich was killed by assassins that were sent by British intelligence I believe in either Prague I think it was Prague Czechoslovakia or perhaps Bucharest but anyway one of the eastern european capitals and I quote the most sophisticated apparatus for conveying top secret orders was at the service of Nazi propaganda and terror, Stevenson noted. The power of a totalitarian regime rested on propaganda and terror. Heydrich, the German Secret Service agent, had made his study of the Russian OGPU, the Soviet Secret Ser- uh, Security Service. That's the Okhrana, for short. He then engineered the Red Army purges carried out by Stalin. A German Secret Service agent engineered a purge of the entire Red Army carried out by Stalin. The Russian dictator believed, probably wanted to believe, that his own own armed forces were infiltrated by German agents as a consequence of a secret treaty by which the two countries helped each other rearm. Secrecy bred suspicion. I like that statement. That's an interesting statement. Secrecy bred suspicion, you put it in the present. Secrecy breeds suspicion, which bred more secrecy. Until the Soviet Union was so paranoid, remember the shooting down of the 747? Are they still paranoid about national security? Was so paranoid, it became vulnerable to every hint of conspiracy. Late in 1936, Heydrich had 32 documents forged To play on Stalin's sick suspicions and make him decapitate his own armed forces. The Nazi forgeries were incredibly successful, as happened in history. More than half of the Russian officer corps, some 35,000 loyal, dedicated, experienced Soviet officers, were either executed or banished. 35,000 professional officers. Stevenson's intelligence summary concluded that the forged papers led to shooting or imprisonment for three out of five Soviet marshals, that's like a five-star general, 14 of 16 military commanders in chief, all Russian admirals of ranks one and two, 60 of 67 commanding generals, 136 out of 199 divisional commanders, 221 out of 397 brigade commanders, all 11 deputy defense commissars, and 75 out of 80 members of the Supreme War Soviet were liquidated. That is paranoia on a massive scale. 35,000 men. Every one of those men, 40s, 50s, 60s, having served the Soviet Union from the time probably of Nicholas I should say of of, of the Tsar and having converted over or perhaps they'd even been a part of the revolution and had risen through the ranks were loyal, faithful Russian patriots. There was not a shred of truth to any of those fake German documents. All 35,000 were the most loyal officers that Stalin could find and he murdered them. I don't know why that rings a bell in my mind. That some of the most talented and the most loyal, the most faithful down over the decades of a minister, a ministerial structure, were likewise liquidated Although, thanks be to God, not with bullets, just with words. And really, through a similar cause. It's a fascinating chapter of history. An ugly one. He goes on when he says in verse 10, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. Isn't that a fascinating statement to the ministry that was to be the very foundation of the church of God? You guys remember, you apostles who are to be, remember I told you, Don't ever despise a poor person, a less fortunate, a less educated, a less wealthy, one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying they've got an access. And you can't do anything to get between these little ones and God the Father in heaven because they will be under the protection of God's angels. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Then follows our very well-known analogy of the one lost sheep, and forsaking the ninety-nine, and going to find the one. Verse 14, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Question. If the minister over in North Carolina thought the lady lying there in her bed, who had nearly died and given birth to a baby under great duress and pain, was about to lose out on salvation, what would you think, if you're a lay member, would be the attitude, would be the ideal attitude of a minister who was seeing someone doing something which was hurting her, which was heading her toward a lake of fire? Would it have been concern, fear for her? empathy, almost a desperate attempt to use exactly the right psychology, the gentlest possible approach to help this lady understand, oh, she's doing something here, she's, she's seeing this evil person. Of course, the whole scenario is ludicrous on its face, because the lady with whom she was spending some time in the hospital, probably the best person she could have possibly seen in the whole eastern seaboard at that moment in time, maybe the whole United States of America. The guy who came in later probably had no business being there. But anyway, you get my point. You as a layperson can immediately answer my black lady over there, what should the attitude of the ministry be in that scenario? In that scenario, his attitude is empathy. His attitude is is I want to help her. I want to save her. The son of man has come to save that which is lost, reach out and rescue them. Not to say, "Oh, you want to visit with somebody not in the church, somebody just marked?" Well, you know what this means (laughs) says in my Bible take heed that you despise not one of these little ones that was despicable that was spite he despised that woman didn't love her then he goes on about if your brother trespass against you and so on and how oft you should forgive and Peter wanted to know because, of course, Peter was a person who always got himself in trouble in that regard. Now, back in the 16th chapter, and beginning in verse 6, Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. You know, we tend to zero in on the Pharisees because they seem to come in conflict with Jesus a little more often than the Sadducees. But he said, really, as a class, the two different sects at various... Uh, extremities of the pole, the Pharisees believing in the law and certain rigorous things. The Sadducees a little more aesthetic, yet the Sadducees were in the temple. The Sadducees denied the resurrection, the Pharisees did not. But basically they both were, were with certain uh, exceptions, they were, they were similar in many ways. The disciples reason among themselves, saying it's because we've taken no bread. Which, when Jesus perceived, said, O ye of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you brought no bread. Don't you yet understand? Then he began to give them an object lesson. And then he said in verse 11, How is it you don't understand that I didn't talk to you about bread, but that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then, verse 12, understood they how that he made them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Now, what was the doctrine? of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They believed in God the Father. They believed in Messiah. They looked at all the Old Testament scriptures, knew them by heart, Daniel 7, Daniel 12, certainly Isaiah 56, Isaiah 58, about the blood and so on. They may not have gotten all of that, but when they look at the Old Testament prophecies of which there are so many, about really what we understand to be the second coming of Christ. The whole book of Zephaniah, the restoring of the old cities and waste places, they could see a Christ, not a Christ, I should say really a Messiah, they would never have called him Christ, but a conquering Messiah to come, who would have been like a conquering king, who would have restored them to the grandeur of Solomon's empire and even a greater stature, who would have vindicated the faithful performance of the duties in the temple of the Pharisees and so on. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in a righteous way of life. They believed in answering, and they had done so over the generations, interminable questions exactly like those that I set myself to answer in 1955, 6, 7, 8, and 9, through 1960, to about 1966 and 7, when I quit answering foolish questions. But before that time, I would answer questions such as, do you think it is a sin to wear a wedding ring? Do you think it is a sin to have my sideburns below my earlobes? Uh, Do you think it is a sin uh, to make hotcakes on Saturday morning when the kids come over? I would sit there and I would would reason around, go back and forth through the Bible, and I would try to answer that. And I would listen to ministers in ministerial counsel. I think, Mr. Armstrong, we're going to have to spell this out. Because, you know, these people, they will take advantage. And if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. The Pharisees answered those questions, and they had a book. And the book may have been this big, I don't know, it was called the Talmud. And it had thousands and thousands of little picky answers. It was all spelled out, totally spelled out. They had a religion that was locked into place. They had preventive legislation. They knew exactly how to treat people, and they treated them consistently with the same degree of generous contempt they were known to be contemptuous of the people. All right, let's go along here a little bit in the 16th chapter in verse... down here in verse 12. They understood then how that He made them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They had the resurrection from the dead, the government of God. They had a certain order. They had rituals and they also had a scorn for lesser mortals. If you want to see a great deal about the Pharisees, I could give you just a few. You can see how they embraced Jesus on the subject of divorce in Matthew 19 and verse 3. And I won't turn to that, but that's the lengthy one about in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be. On eating, habits of eating with washed or unwashing hands in chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, verse 11, and also Matthew 15 and verse 1. Why do your disciples eat with ceremonially defiled, that is, unwashing hands? On the subject of forgiveness in Luke 5 and verse 21 on the subject of the Sabbath which they really braced him on time and again Matthew 12 and verse 2 Mark 13 verses uh, 1 through about 6 where he healed I should say Mark 3 I beg your pardon where he healed a person on the Sabbath day now let's take a look at Mark 10 and verse 32 here again Christ was at a time of extremis where he was going to go and be beaten and whipped and put to death and very shortly thereafter He would be on a cross crying to his Father. And just before that event, when he would try to tell his disciples what was going to happen, instead of experiencing their empathy, their understanding, having one of them walk up, put an arm around him and say, we understand, we wish this weren't going to happen to you, they immediately began talking about what are we going to get? What will our office be? We see it again in this chapter in Chapter 10 of the book of Mark I'm going to read on uh, from verse 35 read up to it James and John the sons of Zebedee came unto him saying master We would that you should do for us whatever we shall desire meaning we'd like to ask a favor of you if We could we'd like to get in on the ground floor and he said to them What would ye that I should do unto you or for you? And they said grant unto us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your glory in your kingdom. their mama put them up to it their mother if you read the bible very clearly came to christ herself she was one of these who probably went around the community and said to people oh yes two of my boys are are disciples of jesus yes two of them the lads are with the lord you know she just gossip all the time oh yes two of my boys are in the ministry And she was so proud. Well, she's continually coming to Jesus and saying, please let my boys, you know, moms want their boys to get ahead. So she wanted her boys to be on the left and the right hand. That means Peter, Andrew, James, John, you know, all the rest of you guys, you get back there somewhere. But my two boys here, the sons of Zebedee, I'd like them to be in the chief seats when Christ comes and is able to hand out the rewards. Probably thought his name was Mies or something like that. Granted to us that we may sit One on your right hand, the other on your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said unto them, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Interesting question. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about what is called his passion. He's talking about his arrest, trial, his crucifixion, which was preceded by a terrible beating. And they said unto him, We can Well, pretty courageous statement. But it was mostly braggadocio. And then he said, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with a baptism that I'm baptized with all shall you be baptized. Thus speaking, very likely James and John were both going to die. Now John lived until a ripe old age. We don't know the exact circumstances of his death. There is nothing elsewhere in the Bible which in any way sets this scripture aside. This is some indication that even at his very old age on the Isle of Patmos, John may have eventually been arrested. We read in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, very early in the development of the New Testament church, that James was beheaded with a sword. James, the brother of John, was arrested and beheaded. So Christ was saying, yes, you're going to drink of the cup. And the baptism that I'm baptized with, you shall be baptized with the same verse 40 but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give but you get the point instead of saying Oh, that's terrible. Look what's going to happen. Because he had just said, if you read verse 33 and 4, they're going to mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. And the third day he'll rise again. He no sooner finishes saying, They're going to kill me, beat me, spit on me, but I'm going to be resurrected. And they kind of blot that out of their minds just like they didn't understand it. What's that all about? A lot of jargon. Oh, well, you're going to be resurrected. It means here you come in your kingdom. Would you let us sit on each hand? Without a thing about, oh, that can't happen to you, or oh, we're so sorry, or well, how can we prevent it, or or, what do you mean? But just immediately, how can I get mine? They were carnal. This was the attitude that gripped those young men prior to the resurrection of Christ, prior to the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit and their conversion. Now the ten heard it, verse 41, And they began to realize that James and John had kind of stuck their foot in it, and they took their part, and they began to become displeased with them. So Jesus knew that a fight was getting started, an argument getting started, and they were kind of putting James and John down and maybe raising their voices. So he called to them, and he said, verse 42, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship, dictatorship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Now, of course, people today say, of course, (laughs) logically, because the ministers are the greatest. That isn't what he's saying. Whoever will be great shall be your servant. Now, you hire a servant. I hire a handyman, and I tell him what to do out in my yard. He's my servant. You know, a minister is like a servant, like someone who waits on people. If that minister coming into the hospital room over there had been more like a servant, he'd have been a little closer to the way those ministers were that came to my hospital room. He would have been asking, what can I do for you? How do you feel? And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. I wonder why ministers can't get that through their thick heads in some churches. And how it is that decade after decade, people will mow yards and babysit the kids and run errands. I've known the ministers who lived in the middle of a city. A lady on the south part of the city would call, desperately ill. The minister would pick up the phone and call the elder on the north side of the city, 25 miles further away at 3 a.m. in the morning, rouse him out of bed when he is a man with a job who's got to go out on his plumbing business the next day, and the minister is full-time and salaried. All he's got to do the next day is play racquetball or golf but he calls the elder to get up and drive 50 miles to go pray for the lady so the minister can just say thanks and go hang up the phone and go back to bed. I don't know how long it's going to take to get some of those. Well, I think it's, uh, it's beyond saving in some cases that I know of. It's, it's never going to get into the thick heads that the ministers are supposed to be there to serve the people. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice Luke 22, and beginning in verse 25. Luke twenty-two twenty-five. He said the same thing. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority are called benefactors. Isn't that fascinating? Even though they were autocrats and they were dictators, they were called magnanimous. They were called benefactors. They were called altruists. They were the people who really were giving so generously. They were called generous. You ever known a people who are called generous, really good at giving, of anything except their hearts, their love, their concern, and their time? I've known a lot of people who are real good at giving other people's money away generously just give you money but empathy concern a little bit of themselves their time their hearts he said but this shall not be so he that is the greatest among you let him be as the younger and he that is chief as he that doth serve whether is greater he that sits at meat or he that serves isn't it he that sits at meat? but I am among you as he that serves so I'm not among you as one who is great or the greatest the one who is the greatest sits at the head of the banquet table. Other people are scurrying around waiting on him. Christ was not there as the one at the head of the banquet table with other people waiting on him. He was there as the person doing the waiting. That's what he said. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom." At that time, then, way out in the future, then is the time for the big banquet, and the glory, and the greatness, and the celebration, and the acclaim of angels. But not now. Not now. You can't live at the banquet table today, as we shall see, and be a true minister of Jesus Christ, and the Lord said and why did he say this and why did he say it to Peter and why did he say it immediately following what they had just said well we have to go back a little bit because it said in verse 21 Jesus just after the Passover we're gonna read this here about a month now verse 20 this cup is the New Testament my blood this is the Paschal supper he is very heavy he is saying all these things passing out the bread and the wine has gone along and washed their feet Behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes, as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves, how well did they remember the lesson he had given them? We just went over that he told them once before. Which of them it was that should do this thing? And there was also a strife among them, began to argue, there at the Passover table on the night he said, and says that a preferred rendering of this is, Satan can have you by the asking. Satan has obtained you by just asking for you, because you're just cooperating with Satan the devil. You're letting a satanic attitude get into your mind. But I have prayed for you, and that was the only thing that withstood Satan the devil, that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, because he certainly wasn't at that time, strengthen your brethren. And he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. Here's the braggadocio, and you know what the story was. Oh, he boasted, I'm ready to go right now. Go to jail and to death. I'll die with you. Stand up there and let him put the spirit on my side. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to say that you don't even know who I am. And you've read the story time and again, and exactly that's what the human nature that led Peter caused him to do. So it's an interesting little look into the attitudes of those men themselves prior to their conversion. Matthew, the 23rd chapter, is of course our text that we continually come to about the Pharisees, but let's read it to glean a little more about their doctrine, because he said the leaven of the Pharisees was their doctrine. Now here we are approaching the days of unleavened bread. This is a message to all of the church today. A message to the ministers, to the ministerial council, to hosts, to elders. We don't really have, quote, ranks of elders. We just have people who are ordained and they're ministers. Whether they are an elder without a church or an older man, they might be an elder. Or whether they're a pastor or simply a minister is a matter of function, not a matter of rank. But it's to everybody. It's to me, to Mr. Dart, to all of us. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not after their works, for they say, and they do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Let me suppose that I had put off this operation for about 20 years, which I did, about 30 years, but finally I went and had an operation. But you're a lady of the congregation, and you've had a chipped vertebra, and it is causing you a great deal of pain. And you've been analyzed, you've been to the doctor, and he has said that the only way to ever get rid of that is to have an operation. But I've been on a tear here lately, and I've been preaching one sermon after another about healing. Let's suppose that I concealed my trip to the hospital... But I didn't tell anybody, kept it secret, that they gave me medicines over there, including painkillers. I don't know what some of them were. I mean, I was, I'm in the hospital. they come in a little red cup, red liquid. Time for your medicine. What's in it? Oh, I don't know. Something the doctor says you need. Okay, cool. I don't know what it was. Didn't do anything to me that I can tell. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of pain. Maybe it killed the pain, you suppose? They said it was a painkiller. What if I'd kept it secret? And you'd have thought that, oh, he's... Uh, he's got a case of the flu, or maybe he's working on a painting, or maybe he's on a trip somewhere. He and his wife went to visit relatives, whatever. But then I'm just on a real tear. Somebody comes to me, do you think I should go to the hospital? And I'm out here preaching hospitals are slaughterhouses and doctors are butchers, and I've got you in fear. And what if we have a child here, age nine, who dies of appendicitis, ruptured appendix, because the parents are afraid to take him to the doctor? Wouldn't that be a classic case of binding heavy and grievous burdens, but me not deigning to lift a one of them with my own finger? My boy went immediately to the hospital and his appendix out up in Minnesota. I go to the doctor when the pain got so bad I simply couldn't stand it. My wife almost told me, if you don't, I'm going to move in the other room because I can't listen to you moaning all night every night. And that was really the thing that did it when you stopped to think about it. No, I'm just kidding. But I decided... I sleep real cold, and she puts out a lot of heat, so I decided best way is to stay warm in the winter, so I went and had my arm fixed. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. That That is an interesting statement to me, an interesting statement. I look at all that Jesus Christ said that was going to be the lot of his true ministers. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they've hated me, they will hate you. Beware of men. When you are delivered up, you will be dragged, brought in manacles before kings and governors for my name's sake. Don't think in advance what you shall speak. It shall be given you in that day what you shall speak and what you shall say. They will scourge you in their synagogues. The time will come when they that kill you will think they do God a service. How big of a splash are we supposed to make in our local community? Are we supposed to be the kind of people who, if a tornado wipes out our neighbors, we show up with the clothes and the money and the help and whatever we can do? Or are we supposed to be the kind of people who throw a banquet in this room for the mayor, the heads of all the local banks, the heads of the biggest businesses, and the president of the Cotton Belt Railway, and do our very level best to ingratiate ourselves with the judges and the lawyers of Tyler? Should not I ask Mr. Dart to join Rotarians and very rapidly rise to become the president of the club and have the meetings right here in this beautiful room? Wouldn't that really be nice for the church to do that? Maybe we should start some other organization where we could even be involved in something, where we could invite the Philadelphia uh, Symphony what about that up here to a beautiful hall right here in Tyler and we could be the sponsoring body It would be really great for the community. It would be good for all you people a lot of you I understand listen to country western music We could get you in there and you could hear the beautiful strings and all that and you'd hear symphonic music And it would be in the paper why the Church of God International Foundation sponsored the Philadelphia Symphony and all these people came in there that would really be great. You know, the more I talk about that, the better that sounds. We ought to, we ought to do that. Uh, we ought to take that up. Remind me to bring that up in the conference. I'm just kidding, of course. All their works they do for to be seen of men. Now, a lot of the things that are being done by our brethren every day and every week are not seen of men. We're, we're really kind of hidden out here. I think the Friends Indeed Club that help people and have bake sales and this and that to try to help people are doing a very, very good work. But you sure aren't aware of it. The church is not really even aware of it, except that all the ladies are involved. But I mean, other people aren't. I don't know of any place where we toot their horn. Do you? I don't even know where the horn is. If I knew, I'd go toot it, but I don't know where the horn is. They make broad their flactories and enlarge the borders of their garments. The flactory was a kind of a, a silly thing, really. It was something that they wore, which was like an equivalent to ribbons on the chest of a military man. And it told of their great deeds. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts. Hmm. I remember nearly getting kicked out of the ministry, trying my best to do away with the idea of an entire segment of about 240 chairs over here to the left of the stage, with 12,000 people in the auditorium, where all the ministry and their kids, and they were the most ill-behaved kids in a church. Running around, fighting, screaming, yelling, falling over chairs over here—it was, it was the most noisy section in the church a lot of time. I about got kicked out for suggesting that the ministry belongs sprinkled in and among the brethren. That at the feast the minister ought to live in the Holiday Inn where his people were. That he ought to be staying not in some great big luxury resort over here where all the ministers are, but he ought to stay over here among the people. So if they got sick or needed his help, or he could be with them and they could—you know—he could serve the people. Boy, was that a bad idea. My ears rang for about a month uh, after I suggested that. I also suggested one time that the ministers ought to pay their own way to the feast. Ease off for the burden on the uh, uh, tie that that was taken because it was brought up. The third tithe uh, includes the Levites. Now that's a vast area. Levites live in homes, right? So huge, big homes and maybe enlargements of homes are paid for out of third tithe. And then they tell a black, half-blind lady, can't you go get welfare and food stamps? We've got to, you know, put this third tithe for use into the work here. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. Isn't that the church? The chief seats in the church? I've been trying to sit as far back as I could. Maybe that's a cheap seat. It's closer to the coffee pot. Maybe I better change, sit up here. But I always like to sit in back if I can in the services. But I have really run into a lot of that where it seems I've seen some setups in some churches where a minister who has no part in the function at all sits on the podium. If there are other ministers there, they all get up there and sit there where the people kind of look at them the whole time. They can look at the people, you know, look. Very pompous, and uh, and and uh, the people can look at them, and and uh, the minister that's doing the preaching can point to them and chuckle and kind of show up how great they are. Now, a lot of churches are designed that way. They've got benches and seats right there for the other ministers to kind of be on display. They could, if they wanted to, they kind of let them down over the congregation on a cable, kind of flying like angels. Here comes Brother Evans coming down from heaven. That would really be the uppermost room. And greetings in the markets. Greetings, Rabbi! Rabbi! And, you know, oftentimes I think when some people who love those greetings aren't greeted, I think they take it rather unkindly. I think they notice it. I think when it's something that they dote on, and they come along to a feast or a service, and if some lay member just walks by, they think, well, that dolt doesn't he know that I'm the minister here? He should have said, Oh, how are you, Mr. So?" It'll nearly fall over backward to let him know that you're really in awe. Don't be called rabbi, teacher, or lord. For one is your master, even Christ, and you are all brothers. You're just brothers. You're just brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be, that's ultimately, not now, in the church every week, not at the feast, not before the brethren, but in the kingdom, shall be exalted. Now, what was wrong with them? What was their attitude? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It was hypocrite, or or hypocrisy, rather. In other words, do one thing, say one thing, do another. Appear one way, be another way. Double standard. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer you them that are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses. Wow, what a tremendous indictment And then when I hear this lady just one week ago saying that the minister came to her, a a, a black lady, partially blind, wanting to to try to push her off a third tie so the church doesn't have to help her anymore, I could scarcely believe my ears. You devour widows' houses. So it meant when the man died and the woman was in debt and she couldn't make it, these guys, under a pretense of coming in to help her out, somehow manipulated around to where she ended up out on her ear without a place to stay, and they inherited her property. I don't understand it, but they did it. And for a pretense, make long prayers. See, they appeared to be very spiritual. Therefore, you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe well, to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You compass sea and land to make one proselyte. You bend every effort. You pull out all stops. You spend all kinds of money. You travel. You use psychology. You use a three-tiered, very gentle approach. You use everything possible to get someone inside your organization. And when you get him in there, you make him twofold more a child of Gehenna than you are. He takes on your bitter, hostile, hypocritical characteristics. You pervert him. You take a, a person out here and then you proselyte him, you get him in, and you twist him into a caricature of yourselves. Woe unto you, you blind guides, which says, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's a debtor. I won't read it all. He called them fools and blind in verse 19. And he said they were hypocrites in verse 23, you pay tithe, and Mr. Dart brought that out recently on a sermon on that subject, and they did that, did it carefully, and Christ of course said that should have been done, but he shows again the hypocrisy of them. You pay tithe, you know, they're counting mint leaves. They were out here taking little bits of of a little sprig of something and making sure it was one-tenth. There are nine left, take the one, put it in the little pot. Of Annas and Cumim, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law: judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Take which, whichever pick you like. People have argued about which one it is he is to to do. Well, he's saying do both, didn't he? Don't leave either one undone. Do both. But you should have put judgment, mercy, and faith first. You blind guides, which strain at a nap and swallow a camel. Woe unto the scribes and Pharisees! They make clean the outside of the cup and platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. Extortion. That's interesting. Extorting money. How do you do that? How do you extort? Well, you do it through fear. You maybe suggest that someone go into debt. You threaten them with great dire consequences. Like the time, the only time I've ever been to one of these tent camp revivals where I saw the guy allow us out, God had told him that some of those people might not make it home that night. That they might have an automobile wreck, or their homes might be on fire when they got there if they didn't cough up another $100. He counted the offering, he was 700 short, and I watched him extract that $700 in about the next 20 minutes. Until finally, and I mean, it became painful about how long we waited for the Lord to move on that one rebellious person's heart. To get him to whip out his checkbook and come up with another $100. But finally they did it. His name was A.A. A. Allen. And understand he died in San Francisco and that never even had to bury him because he was already pickled when he died. He turned out to be an alcoholic and was in bed with some young boys. It was rather a, a terrible thing. But it says here that you extort. And they did that, of course, by fear. Now let's go, let me see it here in verse, uh lost my place, this is a, a brand new Bible and you can't find it. Okay, verse 28. We'll just follow along there. You outwardly appear righteous unto men, but inward are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You build the tombs of the prophets, verse 29, and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And you say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And this was something, as I've said before, I never understood until the last five or six years, because I didn't quite get the connection. Knowing that God says in Ezekiel 18 that we do not suffer for what the forebears did, I was wondering at Christ's anger toward them because they admitted that their forebears did all these terrible things. He said in verse 35, that upon you may come the righteous blood from Abel, Zacharias, the son of Zacharias, whom ye slew. And yet that had happened way before. And he is very angry at the living generation. So he said, verse 31, wherefore you are witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers. And the point is that they were not stoning any prophets right then, but he is saying you are identical in character, and if you had the opportunity, if you had that possibility, you would do it. And of course, in his death, they did do it, didn't they? They were out there screaming in a place called Gabbatha, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, and they did it. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation, condemnation of Gehenna? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city." Then I read the other verse. And then he cried over Jerusalem. You know, you look at what kind of a church that was in a way it it started out. And We said time and again Mr. Dart's sermon on the ecclesia, which he said should be assembly of some few months ago that every time we read the word church we should really understand the word assembly so we don't think hierarchy we don't think tight-knit organization or corporation or vertical structure with great power and authority but we just think assembly and he asked can the church save you can the church heal you well that would be like can we heal ourselves Can we save ourselves? Because we're merely an assembly, a fraternity, which is not ominous, merely means a brotherhood, or a sorority, which merely means a sisterhood. And that was the way they began. You know, when Jesus told Peter, when he embarrassed him that time by making him admit that he loved him, he told Peter three times, feed my sheep. He didn't say, feed your sheep. He said, feed my sheep. I remember years ago chiding the ministry of another church by telling them, those people that you see out there on the Sabbath are not there because you are there. You, the minister, are there because the people are there. I don't think many of them believed me, but it happened to be true. And the same thing is true today of the Church of God International because we are far more of an association or a group of people, an assembly of scattered human beings who are preaching the gospel as a witness and a warning to the world, and the fallout from that is that eventually people, through the reading of the literature, and eventually perhaps visiting with a local pastor, sometimes it happens in a family or by word of mouth, and sometimes people are converted as a direct result of the preaching of a given local pastor, but that is not the common way by which individuals are brought into the church in this day and age. It is basically through first the electronic media, then the print media, perhaps personal evangelism, reading the literature, eventually understanding things like the Sabbath, the holy days, coming to a feast, etc. and then perhaps beginning to attend church. I know sometimes it may be frustrating to some of our own ministers here and there along the line who have people who simply don't come to church that often, or sometimes they don't come at all. Let me tell you, I've been in the same boat. I have never yet conducted a personal appearance campaign where someone has not gotten up and walked out on me in the middle of the sermon. And I have never taken issue with them. I've never said, where are you going? I just don't do it. That would be unthinkable. Because the door swings both ways. I advertise it's open to the public. Come one, come all. No collections, no offerings. You're not going to be asked for anything. I assume they came as a free moral agent to hear me preach. And sometimes somebody doesn't like something I say, they get up and walk out. Now I do not have control over all of the people in the church so that I can exact retribution on that person who gets up and walks out. I do not conceive of you people here as a totally captive audience. No matter what I say, no matter what I put upon you, no matter what I make you go through mentally, that you're gonna still be sitting here when I'm through. Why should anyone else along the way in the Church of God International imagine that he has certain benefits or privileges above those which I enjoy. There may be a time here and there where someone simply does not attend or someone doesn't come back or someone doesn't like the way or the manner in which a minister preaches or perhaps certain analogies he uses or his voice or his presentation, I don't know. But you know, I want to tell you right here and now, because of the fact that we are operating in a structure that is far more similar to the first century church of God than it is similar to many an orderly hierarchy of government in the church world, churchdom today, that there are hundreds and hundreds of scattered brethren here and there who have become sometimes disenchanted with a pastor, or a minister, or a host, or an elder in their area. We've had cases where there have been a host over here and a host over there across the river in the same city, and they didn't like each other. But all of the people meeting in each group kind of liked what they heard coming out of Tyler, but they didn't like the other host and they're still faithful to the work and they support the work and there they are and they are living lives that are heading them toward the kingdom of God and even though once in a great while we've had people kind of come to us and you know not say right out would you tell host number two to get out of my tree and quit climbing around trying to shake my birds off the branches I'm the guy in this area and I want to be the one in charge we said sorry I know we've made mistakes, but you know, we have treated those things with a kind of a, what I will call benign neglect. And some people have gotten a little angry about the way that we have not descended into a local area, tried to sort out who is right and who is wrong, sit them all down, rebuke the parties who are the offending ones, exonerate the offended parties, get it all straightened out, and leave in a flurry of dust and candy wrapper and say, we took care of that. We don't have a troubleshooter in our church. We don't have one minister who goes around for four hours preaching people, boring them half to death, and every time we hear of a problem we say, get send him out there. He called them, verse 24, you blind guide, restraining on that. Well, I covered that. Covered the part where they are the living generation. And then he cried over Jerusalem. All right. We don't have any captive audiences. I want to turn to 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, and to show you what Peter said in answer to the question that I was asked. What kind of a minister, what kind of a ministerial authority, the leadership of the church, what are they supposed to be like and I can't put it a bit better than the way Peter did in 1st Peter 5 the elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed feed the flock of God I told you he wouldn't forget and he didn't he didn't say feed my flock Christ said, feed my sheep. You are not Garner Ted Armstrong sheep. You're not my flock. You are God's sheep. And Christ is your Savior and your head and your ruler and your leader. And he is the only priest you need. And he is your minister. I'm merely a kind of an adjunct out here. I'm a spokesman. Feed the flock of God which is among you. I like that word. The word among means sort of on a level. It's a lateral word, it's not a vertical word. It doesn't say, feed your people which are under you. I've heard ministers talk about, now I could bring my people and we could get together with your people and all of our people would be there and we'd have a people to look at. And you could say, those are my people, your people... No, oh, there's the people. Guess whose people they are. You think you could get your people to go along with that? Well, I don't know about my people. There are a lot of people who think they belong to other people. Well, I'll tell you something about me. I'm not a religious person. Now, sure old women aren't supposed to speak in church. I am not. I mean, by nature. Just my nature is not a religious nature. I do have a kind of a Jonah complex. I'm afraid of what might happen to me if I didn't do what I'm doing, but it isn't my desire. I mean, my desire to be in a ministry is non-existent, believe me. So I would be a very poor candidate to be the pastor of a local church. Because just going into people's homes and visiting them and running around and doing all of that type of thing day in and day out, I know that God has not equipped me. I am absolutely a crippled person. I'm halt and blind and maimed when it comes to that kind of an attitude. I am deficient in that area and I know it. He has given me a certain gift, and probably not a very good one at that, of doing, speaking and so on. But as far as these things here, I don't have that gift. He told them, feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight, and that is not a vertical statement either, thereof, overseership is leadership, not by constraint, but willingly, not for the evil motive of trying to make money, or to exploit or extort, but of a ready, willing mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage. Can we see them as God's heritage? Now, I want to look at it this way. Many people adopt children. What if every minister looked at it this way? We've seen these crazy movies, you know, the Time Warps, and we saw Mark and Mindy, and like these idiots, and Mark was an idiot who came from outer space. In this case, we're going to draw the analogy that here are a group of people, and they are like angelic beings who have been sent here in human form, and God has said to a local pastor, those are my people. Those are my kids. They're spiritual members of my family from heaven and I'm gonna send them down there and I want you to teach and to train them all these human things. I want you to be their coach and their pastor and they're gonna be sitting in a congregation and they're gonna look like male and female just like common ordinary people. You won't be able to tell them apart but they're my property. Belong to me. I wonder how the minister would treat them. I have the concept that some of these ministers that I am speaking of here, the Pharisees were certainly so power hungry that they would now realize that their very best way to ingratiate themselves with a boss would be to so humble themselves before those people who were God's heritage that they would get in so good with them they would think even if they had an evil motive to get ahead But I want every one of these beings in the congregation that God has sent down here, when they go back up with him, to put in a good word for me. I want them, when they're back with him where they came from, to say, Boy, he was a great man. He was a great pastor. He was our friend. He was really the nicest man I ever met. You know, if a minister were to think of it that way, the people looking at him in the congregation are God's heritage. They're going to be there talking to God in heaven about the kind of a job I do. I think the approach... I've never understood why a man wants to be in a pulpit in the first place. I've never understood the attitude some people get angry, you know, and they, be, they begin to become competitive and they don't like somebody else. They want to kind of climb up and, and they think that, that what I'm doing right now is something that is powerful somehow, nonsense. I am far, you know, I'm far more vulnerable. You're not vulnerable where you sit, I can't even say the word. You're not vulnerable in your chair. It says, even a fool when he holds his peace looks wise. Every one of you look absolutely wise right now. I'm up here, potential idiot. I could make any kind of mistake. Why would people want to subject themselves to that? Look at the trouble I'm getting in, in this one sermon all by itself. (laughs) Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Likewise, you younger elders, because that's what he's saying, you younger ministers, younger elders, submit yourselves unto the elder elders. So he is using the term younger and elder in terms of experience and age, isn't he? Yea, all of you be subject one to another. That does not say there is such a thing as a top minister in the church, does it? This is the word of God. We're supposed to tremble before it. I don't care who did what back decades ago. I don't care what kind of a church has what kind of hierarchy. Any human being with a fifth grade education can read those words, and that is the living word of Almighty God. And it says the ministers are to be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. And wherever you find ministers who are not subject one to the other and clothed with humility, you're not finding Christ's ministers. Somebody else is employing those men. But it's not Jesus Christ of Nazareth that died for me. That's all I know. Now, if you want to heap that on my head and say Ted's really gone the to middle in the day he's saying a lot of things against some other church and I wish he'd leave that other church alone, you help yourself. But God Almighty is going to judge him according to these words, not because of some jaundiced attitude or some uh, whatever, you know, glandular emotion or grounded Ted Armstrong. But depending upon what Apostle Peter said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit centuries ago. God resists the proud. God resists you, whoever you are, who walked into the hospital room and couldn't even ask that poor woman how she was and put her out of the church. That man finds himself resisting Almighty God and God is resisting him, pushing him away. He'll say, I don't know who you are. What did you say your name was? Go to the back of the row. You're going over there with those other people. I never knew you. He's going to say, But I, I preached. I was in the synagogues. I did all these things. I never knew who you were. I read in the Bible what he's going to say to that man for treating that woman that way unless he repents. There are some people standing in a lot of pulpits that have got a lot of repenting to do. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. And I won't read it all. But he talks about Satan the devil. And he's talking to whom? He's talking to the ministry. Now the ministry has used this scripture about Satan as a roaring lion to the brethren. When they should have been looking into the looking glass themselves because it was dedicated to the ministry of the church. Here's a special chapter from the Apostle Peter to the elders of the church. I have to take it personally. I hope all of the ministry of the Church of God International will also take it personally. Because that is exactly the way it is intended. No, we're to be as little children. We're to be among the brethren. And I think that also includes at feast time. I think my suggestion way back there years ago was a very good one. It's just too bad the hierarchy in control couldn't see it as a good one and actually inspired by the Spirit of God. I think God's Spirit inspired me to say it and some other spirit turned it away. But you know, if I ever get a letter from a member of the Church of God International that says they're fearful of their minister, they're frightened, and he's kind of threatened them. You've got to get your axe straightened out or you can't come back. I'm going to call for a bucket of cold water. I'm going to say, I don't believe it. You're going to hear me clear through the building. I mean, this would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? I want to faint dead away. That couldn't happen in the Church of God International, could it? I sure hope and pray not. We're coming toward the Days of Unleavened Bread, and the leaven that Christ warned was about was the leaven of the Pharisees. Let us make sure that we don't have that kind of leaven, because that's the easiest to spot. I have been the most obvious. I have been the most exposed person in the room for the last hour and a half. You can spot more easily what's going on in the pulpit and you can see what's going on in the middle row